Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the Times Literary Supplement. I'm joined, as always, by TLS commissioning editor and culture guru, Thea Lenardutzi. Each week, we will be coming to you to discuss major pieces from this week's TLS, plus arts and cultural events. On this week's show, we will be talking about the great writer Angela Carter and her unsettling genre-bending poetry and prose. Her ability, as one of her friends put it, to give us monsters marinated in being. We will also discuss the ethics and antics of translation. Author Tim Parks will join us to talk about his own work as translator of the Italian poet Giacomo Leopardi. Capitalism in its many guises is the issue on the cover of the TLS this week. We will be speaking to historian Pamela Haag about her new book, The Gunning of America, which charts how the American gun market moved from a foreign to a domestic audience due to the advertising campaigns of the 20th century. Finally, we will pay tribute to the poetic genius of Geoffrey Hill, who died last week. Alan Jenkins will read from Hill's poem, Scenes with Harlequins, first published in the TLS in 1990 and reprinted in the paper this week. Giacomo Leopardi was one of the few Italian writers of the 19th century to get an appreciative audience among the English. Gladstone thought him one of the most extraordinary men this century has produced. In the TLS this week, Joseph Luzzi reviews Leopardi's Zibaldones, translated by Kathleen Baldwin and others. It's a 4,000-page diary of ideas, what Luzzi calls an intellectual mosaic filled with everything that Leopardi's insatiable curiosity compelled him to write about. Luzzi also reviews passions translated by Tim Parks, which is a selection, taken from Zibaldone, of Leopardi's musings on the themes of emotions. Here is an extract from Passions, read by the translator Tim Parks. Desperation. Pleasure of desperation. Memories of my life. Dido, Aeneid, Book 4, lines 659 and following. I shall die unavenged, but let me die. Dido says, like this, like this, it's good to go down among the shades. Here, Virgil wants to get across, and it's a deep, subtle sentiment worthy of a man who knows the human heart as he does and has run the gamut of passions and tragedy. The pleasure the mind takes in dwelling on its downfall, its adversities, then picturing them for itself, 
not just intensely, but minutely, intimately, completely, in exaggerating them even if it can, and if it can, it certainly will, in recognizing or imagining, but definitely in persuading itself and making absolutely sure it persuades itself beyond any doubt that these adversities are extreme, endless, boundless, irremediable, uncontainable, beyond any redress or any possible consolation, bereft of any circumstance that might lighten them. In short, in seeing and intensely feeling that its own personal tragedy is truly immense and perfect and as complete as it could be in all its parts, and that every door towards hope and consolation of any kind has been shut off and locked tight so that he is now quite alone with his tragedy, all of it. These are feelings that come in intense fits of desperation when you savor the fleeting comfort of tears. Take pleasure supposing yourself as unhappy as anyone ever can be. Sometimes, even at the first moment, the first emotion on hearing the news, etc., of your disaster, etc., that's wonderful. That's Tim Parks reading his translation, and Tim Parks joins Thea and me now. Thank you very so much for joining us, Tim, and thank you for, for, for reading it that. At one point in the review, Lutzi says that reading Leopardi's prose, one finds oneself nodding in agreement, not scribbling furiously in the margins. But I wondered actually whether that felt a little harsh in some ways. In your view, what's the case for Leopardi as a thinker, as a writer of prose? And then separately, we might talk about where he currently stands in the the pantheon as a poet. Leopardi's poetry was always immensely admired because despite his pessimism, it's just so evidently beautiful and eloquent and um, its cadences are wonderful and it invents a very special voice that that I don't think really exists in English poetry. So it was always possible to admire the poetry without really taking on board the content. The same can't be said of the prose, where the content is absolutely pessimistic and caustic and, and, and brilliantly stated. In, in fact, if, if Leopardi doesn't put it in a sort of system, it's, it's because he's aware that, that even the idea of system is a, is a wild optimism uh, that the human condition can't really can't really allow itself. So that you get passages like this, um, which are passages of psychological observation of, of one's reaction to catastrophe or suffering, where on, on the one hand <laughs> you've got this, this idea of, of how badly things can go wrong and then of how we can take pleasure in how badly things have gone wrong. And then a sort of mad enjoyment of imitating the rhetoric that we deploy when things go wrong, so that that rhetoric becomes a sort of tiny, tiny consolation for, for the absurdity of the human condition. And it's, it's definitely a kind of writing that looks forward to other great pessimists of the 20th century. One thinks, I don't know, Emil Suran, Samuel Beckett, obviously, Thomas Bernhard, even more obviously, and, and so on. It's right at the centre of the European tradition, I think, of, of pessimism. As a translator, you're translating words that weren't necessarily designed 
to be collected and read. They weren't designed in some ways for public pronunciation in the same way that a poem is. Is that a real challenge for you, that you're, you're almost trying to translate the therefore very idiomatic world of someone's personal thoughts at a remove of a couple of hundred years? That, that feels like, a, a, as a translator's task, a very, very daunting and difficult one. Well, this is, a, this is definitely the most difficult translation I've ever done. It, very quickly, Leopardi lived up until about his 22nd or 23rd year in an entirely secluded provincial Italian world, most of which he spent inside a library, which was full of volumes that his father had got at a cheap price when, when Napoleon's troops had raided the libraries uh, in the surrounding monasteries so that much of the material was in, in Latin or Greek or uh, and much of a, of a, of a very obscure nature. <laughs> and he grew up with all this material. And he had a very strange sort of voice of his own between the, between the intimate and the classical. At that time, of course, language was anyway extremely fragmented in Italy. He didn't plan these for publication, but they do clearly form parts of notes and pieces that he would then patch together in separate essays. So you're never quite sure how private or how finished these pieces are. If you put aside that, the fact that, that Italian at, at this period in no way corresponds to, to English at this period in, in the sense of where it was developing as a public language uh, and how it was being used by writers. So, so you've got no possibility of, of sort of trying to create a pastiche of the past because there is no past in English that corresponds to this writing. You've um, you've spoken about um, in fact about performing your your Leopardi, which kind of conjures entertaining images of you hunched over your desk, um, muttering to yourself. But um, how different is your your voice for Leopardi to other English Leopardis? What I mean, what are the chief traits? Well, most of the most of the translations of being Leopard, of Leopardi have of course been translations of his poetry, and um, in that regard, I'm I'm not a translator of poetry. Wouldn't compare my translation with those. There's, there is, of course, the, the big translation uh, of the Zibaldoni, which was done by seven translators, uh, who, because, because there were many of them, were trying to work to uh, a sort of standard idea of what the voice would be like. It's a slightly more... It's a slightly more... <laughs> I'm drawn to criticizing it. It's a, it's a more wooden version of the, than my own, I feel. Um, in a text like the one I read, an enormous amount of work is involved in remaining absolutely faithful to the content, but but reorganizing all the, the sentence structure in order to get this single huge sentence with a sort of, sort of driving rhythm, which is created in a completely different way in Italian. So I did much less work than they did. I mean, they, they translated infinitely more pages than I did. The prose is hopelessly difficult the remuneration is very small so uh, one doesn't want to be particularly critical but it did seem to me it was absolutely necessary that the text be readable in a in a in an exciting way because that is part of its of its sense and it's worth saying actually that uh, our review that's in, in the paper goes a very a long way to, to saying how brilliant uh, your translation 
is Tim. It's, uh, it, there's sort of long passages that recognise a the difficulty of the task as you've uh, articulated it, but also the success with which you achieve it. It, it leads me into a, a question. You talk about the lack of remuneration for translators, the hard job it is to do something like, say, translate 4,000 pages of the prose of, of Leopardi. Do you think it's fair to say that we value translators, the act of translation, that almost impossible act of empathy that it involves? Do you think our culture values them that sufficiently? Well, it's evident that that translating... If we give to literature this pedestal where we say this work is the maximum that human expression can reach in prose, and then we invite someone to reproduce that in another language with all that other language, different traditions, different relationships between publishers, readers, writers, different history, different lexical layering. And we suppose that that, that is going to happen in, in some effective way. Obviously, this is a kind of job that that requires all all the experience you've got and and you know one has to be very careful not not to accept to do texts where you feel that that you haven't got that experience instead the world we live in is a world of industrial publishing where a, a text arrives on a publisher's desk who probably can't read it being as it is in, in the foreign language or can't read it with any real intimacy Uh, and and he makes a number of phone calls and various translators are busy and 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 others don't accept the money that that he can offer and and so it happens that the book gets translated and sometimes it's wonderfully translated and and mostly it's just ordinarily translated and and often it's terribly translated and that's the situation we're in and i don't see any way of going beyond that i mean translators are certainly no worse paid than, say, mental hospital nurses who seem absolutely equally important members of society, but for some reason we have no money for them either. So uh, this is just part of the general gap between between rhetoric about about what we give value to and then what we genuinely give value to, which is obviously more in the line of consumer products. That's, uh, that's a hugely interesting way of putting it. But I, I think the great lesson from this is something like the book Passions that you have translated. You gave a lot of yourself to, to produce this, didn't you? And you had to give a lot of yourself. You talked about sort of going over it over and over again. It, there's, there's a large part where you do have to attain empathy with a man long dead to enable you to produce this? Well, I don't want to be too grand about it in the sense of how do I know if I've really empathized with this man long dead? The, the, and let's get a couple of things straight. First, I'm very privileged in the sense that I don't actually, you know, I have enough income to accept something that isn't going to pay that much. Secondly, I have a lot of bargaining power, so I probably got paid about three times as much as the translators who were doing the big job. Uh, I don't want to go into details, but I do know how much that they were paid and so on. So I'm in a very privileged position, and I take on Leopardi because of 30 years living in Italy. I've always been in love with Leopardi's writing, and in particular with the prose. So it's, it's, here is a chance for me to do this, and I only accepted to translate 180 pages. And then when you do it, you, you just give everything to it, because anything else, any, anything else you do will, will just produce a second-rate product. Then the product you've created... You know, it's really up to other people who can read Leopardi and can read my translation to say Tim's got something or, or he hasn't. For me, this was as close as I, as I could get, but it, it was very much influenced also by contemporary reading and contemporary loves. I, I had to keep Thomas Bernhard very much at bay while I was translating this because he seemed to want 
to be doing the translation himself, had to keep Beckett at bay, and so on and so forth. A, a, a translation, when, when you have this immense pleasure of taking on somebody you really admire, the translation then happens on those very days in which you do it. You know, you have to do it those days, you have to perform it, you, you have to be into it in that moment. And then, of course, you spend countless hours uh, going over it. And then, of course, you rely on having somebody at the publisher's who gives it really meticulous attention and says, you know, Tim, here, I think your long period in Italy has made you not realize that perhaps this, this is a little bit Italian here and so on and so forth. Fortunately, I had an excellent editor at Yale who, who also gave the book a lot of time. That's how this kind of book gets done. Then, of course, it largely disappeared. <laughs> but I enjoyed it. Sure, that's not true. Well, Anderson, one of the things that it, it's certainly not disappeared in, in, in the tear it's a very prominent piece for us. And uh, we're very grateful, Tim, for you taking the time both to, to read out uh, part of your translation and to talk about it. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. So, there, that was uh, Tim Parks talking about his experience of translating Leopardi. But you, of course, were a schoolchild in, in Italy. So, I mean, to me, Leopardi is a name. It doesn't have an awful lot of resonance to me. I don't remember reading much Leopardi growing up or even subsequently. What was it like as an, as an Italian? Where, where does he stand in, in the great pantheon for Italians? It's, that's quite a question, because if you say Leopardi to anyone who went to school in Italy, they'll... You know, they'll react in in, um, in no uncertain terms to it. I, I mean, I went to a European school, so while we studied Leopardi um, a, a bit, he was in no way as central to our curriculum as he would be if you um, if you went to an Italian system in, in which I think you study him from kind of primary school right up really? through the secondaries. Yeah, different different elements of him. Um, and, but we, we did, you know, we did do a bit and... and um, and we, I think we looked to the to the Zibaldone for various things. It's a historical document. It's it's written in, in in such an interesting period for the country, which of course was not yet a country at that at the point of, of writing. But the the Risorgimento was well underway. Um, and it's interesting that that Leopardi wrote in a language that was about to be transformed by attempts to standardize the language. That these these would take. This process would take hold in the second half of the nineteenth century. So, is he regarded as hard? I mean, if you if you were an Italian um, yeah. student, is he regarded as a hard poet? Yeah, for that well, reason? I, I certainly yes, he would. He is regarded. I mean, he would often, if you say to an Italian schoolchild, I think you might find a little bit of an eye roll and oh my god. <laughs> but I mean, he. I mean, it's it's his language is is very literary as um as we know he he learnt by immersing himself in his his father's library and he he read the classics he was fluent in greek hebrew latin um from a very young age and in a way he was his teachers were the ancients so this obviously comes through in his language and his way of expressing himself so it's 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 dense work for a school child um you know for sure i mean he's his 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 language is a very literary italian in a way he's sort of like the last flourishing of, of a branch which runs from straight from him straight back to um petrarch and dante and boccaccio and, and beyond right back to the ancients and I mean, mostly, though, the experience of the Italian school child, you study extracts, nobody, nobody reads the Zibaldone in its entirety. It's just, it's not, it's not possible. Yeah. Um, and it's it's interesting, and it's a point that Tim has has, has pointed out in, in, in his essays on the work, and he's brought it to fruition in this edition that we're discussing today, that Leopardi didn't intend the Zibaldone to be read as a whole. He, he just didn't think that there was this coherent, overarching narrative or philosophy to be found here he thought it should be studied thematically 
So their head is on civilization, memories, uh, and that sort of thing, which does make it ideal for kind of grueling comprehension exercises where you, you'll be presented with an extract and, you know, discuss nature versus culture, man yeah. versus women, modern versus ancient, all that sort of thing. And, and language is obviously uh, a recurring theme in these exercises but the the last thing I'd like to say is that it's a text that though you might struggle with it at school it's something that continues to give and give throughout your education so it probably wasn't until I got to university well in England in fact that I got to to university and realised that as well as being a forefather to uh, nihilism and and, then the pessimism that came to characterise the works of Nietzsche and, and, and Beckett he was also in a way, the Zibaldone was a, you know, I was like, oh my god, he, he was, he's the founder of postmodernism as well. You know, it continues to give you things to, to pick at and and um, think about for the for the rest of your your literary education. So that's it. It's Tim Parks has translated Passions, which is an extracts from Zibaldone, and you'll notice my pronunciation is utterly inferior to both Tim Parks, but more particularly to Thea's. It's in the uh, TLS. Uh, this week, the translation of Zibaldone in the 4,000-page entirety, plus Tim Parks' own translation of Passions in the TLS this week. The cover of this week's TLS takes as its theme various manifestations of capitalism, and one area through which this is examined in the paper is the ever-pressing issue of American gun culture. Stephen Wertheim reviews Pamela Haag's book The Gunning of America, which looks at how the business of selling guns developed in a country where, astonishingly to us Brits at least, tens of thousands of people die from gun violence annually, and a toddler shoots someone once a week. Uh, Pamela Haag joins us now. Hi, Pamela. I think the most interesting thing to me about the book is is this idea that you have that the market for guns was effectively a modern invention. Effectively, big companies in the past were selling to a foreign market, but at the turn of the 20th century, they turned their attention to domestic targets. Why do you think that happened? Yes, that's right. In the United States, at least, there's an assumption that gun makers had a really easy business before them and that American civilians were buying the most modern guns and they were just flying off the figurative shelves. But the actual history of the American gun industry is quite different from that. Once guns were being produced in large volume, the obvious markets really were military, and this was true for Oliver Winchester, who's sort of the focus of my my story, um, but also true for Colt and certainly for Remington. So it was really simple arithmetic. Um, most of them thought that the best market was really initially the war business and military contracts, and um, sought that business. And when it wasn't available in America, uh, they made their first fortune, the first layer of their fortunes, selling abroad. And then that shifted. And and was that a triumph of of advertising and marketing? Effectively, people like Winchester said, there are all of these people within our own country for whom we can create a domestic market for guns. And then it was a triumph of advertising and marketing to convince people that owning a domestic gun was an attractive proposition. Yes, that's right. Because for as tantalizing as the military markets were to the gun capitalists in the 1800s, they weren't without problems. Um, the firearms makers and gun industrialists who were tying themselves to the military contracts were also tying themselves to the boom and bust of war and peace. And at the bottom line, you know, looking at the gun industry as an industry just like any other, 
that wasn't so great for their business. They came to the realization after the Civil War and after there was a little more stability um, elsewhere in the world that maybe the real market to cultivate would be a domestic commercial market. But in some ways, this really wasn't the market of first choice. And the gun makers were somewhat more or less skilled at developing it. Oliver Winchester really worked hard to develop that market. Uh, Remington kind of missed the boat and didn't see the possibility that selling hundreds of thousands of guns to individuals could be just as good as selling a whole bunch at once to a military uh, through a military contract. And I think it's a, it's a testament to the power of marketing um, that sales are up now kind of across the board, even though rape and, and violent crime is down. I think the ability of marketing to just flip every negative is, is really quite some, something. Um, there's um, yeah. I read a piece in The New Yorker which gave the example of how um, Obama's criticism to um, that small town voters cling to guns or religion and how that's been spun into a T-shirt that says proud bitter clinger. That kind of really gets home the uh, the power of marketing yes mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature sleep number smart beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together jd power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store and now save 40 percent on the sleep number limited edition smart bed for a limited time for J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Definitely. The American gun industry and the gun capitalists from the very, very start were at the cutting edge of understanding market segmentation and marketing. And that, again, is kind of a hidden part of the story. I mean, today it's incredibly difficult to find information about how the gun companies function and to whom they advertise. But if you go into the gun archive, that material is quite available. And to me, it was fascinating to read the confidential sales bulletins that Winchester was preparing and the meticulousness that they put into figuring out how to continue to sell guns once America was a post-frontier society, once it was a modern society and an urban society. Um, so really at the turn of the century when guns could have gone either way, you know, they could have faded as an old tool that we didn't need anymore. I think the marketing and the advertising, that very deliberate effort by the gun giants made a huge difference 
and kind of creating the idea of a gun mystique, that guns weren't just about functionality. They were about how you feel. They were about emotions, associations with masculinity. Um, that really was kind of a modern invention. And at the same time, the, the minute, uh, you know, from, from this country, we look at the love that Americans or some Americans have for the Second Amendment, the desire to protect their right to bear arms. Was that lacking a bit in the 19th century? And has that re- returned in force in the later centuries that now it's seen as an important constitutional right? Is that because Americans have grown fonder of their guns in the last hundred years uh, as a result of these gun capitalists than maybe in the 19th century they were? Yeah, I think that I think that's a great question. I think your summary is absolutely right. I mean, to summarize the mood in the 1800s, it would be more guns were around. They weren't ubiquitous, nor were they rare. And they were seen as tools. You know, and looking even just at the gun industry, it wasn't selling guns in the 1860s or 70s by hearkening back to the Minutemen or get indulging in a kind of nostalgia about the mystique of the gun. Um, that really, that whole attention to the Second Amendment, which was kind of an obscure amendment really until the mid-20th century, is just exploded, you know, in the last few decades. But it wasn't a selling point in the gun industry before that moment. Today, to some extent, guns are sold because of the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment itself has become another aspect of gun marketing. Um, I know people who buy guns today not because they want to use them, but because they want to assert their identity, a political identity. You mentioned the the, the macho nature of guns. I'm kind of interested in that because um, in your book you talk about how some of the marketing was directed at women and a sense of helplessness when male members of the family are absent. How much of a gun culture in America as created in this marketing ideal is one of macho-ness and males rather than females? Well, it's important to note that the gun industry for 150 years has been trying to cultivate whatever customers they could and that's just in keeping with any other you know aspect of capitalism and so they were always trying to cultivate female consumers as well and Remington was designing small revolvers for ladies in the 1850s and that's been a tireless effort and I believe it's beginning to yield some fruit now and that that market is growing but the association with a kind of masculine nostalgia and Winchester's advertisements in the early 1900s, which really emphasized that um, every real boy wanted to have a gun. And it was really trying to naturalize the association between men and masculinity and guns in a way that was much more self-conscious than, than what you'd see earlier. Um, it was a much more deliberate effort and kind of tapped into the psychology of desire and subconscious instinct. Um, Winchester and its bulletins would talk about the shooting instincts that all boys had. Um, and this was basically malarkey. <laughs> there wasn't really any anything behind that. But in a moment when American masculinity was in question and there was a lot of anxiety about gender roles, the gun was one of the things that kind of stepped in and shored up this kind of male nostalgia and nostalgia for the rugged life. There's also the um, the development earlier this year that would be amusing were it not so darkly perverse um, that the NRA, um, the National Rifle Association, commissioned a series of fairy tale reimaginings on their website for, for parents and children in which classic tales are reimagined with their endings altered by the presence of guns. Um, yeah, when Americans talk about guns today, they're not just talking about guns anymore. Uh, the gun is... a an object in the conversation. It's uh, 
the conversation is really about a whole set of, of much deeper and sometimes murkier loyalties and values and feelings and identities. Well, well Pamela, thank you so much for, for joining us. It's a really interesting book. Uh, we, we review it in the TLS this week. And, and this notion, though, that I think both Theo and I found very, found very striking was that you always imagine the Second Amendment was an article of religion almost within America, and you also imagine that domestic gun use was also a, a, an ever-given part of American society, and the notion that this was created by market capitalist forces at the turn of the 20th century uh, is a surprising and a really interesting one. Yeah, that's when those issues really come to the forefront, much more than the 19th or the 18th century. It's easy to bandy around the phrase great when discussing a writer, especially one no longer with us, but it's probably appropriate when referring to Angela Carter. She died in 1992, the author of wondrously strange novels like Night at the Circus and short story collections like The Bloody Chamber, from which came the film The Company of Wolves. She wrote what amounted often to sort of modern fairy tales, at the same time both subverting and commenting upon them. In this week's TLS, Kate Webb reviews a memoir, or partially a memoir, of Carter by her friend Christopher Frayling and a collection of her poetry. Kate, what did we learn? Because the, the book by Frayling has a section on Angela Carter, which is effectively a memoir, isn't it? What did we learn from, from his book? Well, the Frayling essay deals with his friendship with her. It's called Angela and Me, A Literary Friendship, and it deals with their relationship when they knew each other in the early, mid-1970s, when they were living in Bath. So it gives us a portrait of Angela at that period at the time, and the essay particularly looks at the books, films and ideas that she was tossing around and thinking about and that later fed on into the collection of of short stories, which is perhaps her best-known collection of stories, The Bloody Chamber. So it gives us a portrait of Angela, a sort of intellectual portrait of how she was putting herself together at that period, but also just what her life was like and, and what she was doing, what kind of films she was seeing, how she was spending her time, the places she was hanging out, the kind of provincial bohemia that fed into a lot of her writing. So people who aren't familiar with Angela Carter, I sort of said at the beginning, she, she sort of comments and subverts fairy tales. Is that, is that, as a writer, the thing for which she's, she's best known, do you think? Well, that, that, that collection of stories is what she's best known for, perhaps. One of the things she says about those stories is, that the idea of this is how I make potato soup, (laughs) that was an analogy that she used. In other words, it was the idea that stories which were passed down from grandmothers to their grandchildren that were oral stories that got told again and again and again. In other words, there wasn't just one version of potato soup, but there are many, and that stories are there to be told and retold and retold. And she also liked the idea that those stories connected people to the imaginations of ordinary men of women in kind of pre-literate times. Um, I think a further thing that's really important is that she, she said, I'm in the demythologizing business. And she was interested in the idea that the sort of monsters and fairies and beasts, fabulous beasts of these stories, were the products of our imagination. They were ours, and we had to take responsibility for them, and we had to look at them, and we had to play with them as well as enjoy them. How important do you think she is now? I mean, because it feels to me like, we were talking about this earlier, there's a a sort of a bit of a renaissance around Angela Carter. Do you think she's she's recognised as an important writer? She is now. I think think she wasn't in her lifetime enough, certainly not enough. She struggled, you know... um, 
she wrote very variously, and um, and one of the things was that she then had, because she kept writing in different styles, partly she had many different publishers. She had seven or eight publishers throughout her life, and it was as if she had to keep starting again. So every now and then she might win a prize, but then she'd kind of get lost off the literary map. There's a sense in which she's really sort of coming into her own now. I mean, she she certainly resonates with, with our very kind of picked-apart, fluid you know, that, that, that sort of world that we, we would define as ours, very fluid and, and, and non-binary. And I think we see, we see that in her rejection, especially of, of, of the female victim, for example. And that's something that you, you touch on as well in your piece. Um, you quote her as saying that she's sick to death of, of um, the female victim. And, and you know, she points out how Jane S. swoons when calling Mr. Rochester master. And, and again, you mentioned Jean Rees and, and Carter kind of crit- criticises her for glorifying her, her wounded status. So she kind of wants to put an end to this uh, luxuriating in, in, in victimhood. And she looks at things from every angle. And that, that really does seem to resonate now. I think that's absolutely right. And what's astonishing about the first novel, Shadow Dance, which Rosemary Hill talks about a little bit in her one of her three sort of three-part essay on Angela Carter, is that right from the beginning in Shadow Dance, she presents this this terrible kind of undead Lolita character, Ghislaine, who who gets slashed in the woods one night when she's out looking for men. Um, and later on, Angela, uh, she gets crucified in the book. But this is, this is, it's not a kind of, sort of wanton act of violence. It's a symbolic act. She's saying that this, this, you know, no, as I say, never know more, she's saying about this woman. And this is 1965. Perhaps one of the few writers that she, she's comparable to in this period and who starts writing it about the same time and comparable to because of the prophetic nature of her writing. As you say, she seems to anticipate so much of what has happened now. Um, I'd say it's, it's her friend Jim Ballard, who's oh, writing in different ways, also prophesies quite a lot of, what, of what's come to, come to be. You mentioned the essay by Rosemary Hill. That's an introduction to the poetry of Angela Carter, which she largely wrote uh, at the beginning of, of her career. Well, what do we take from her, her poetry? What did you take from it when, when, when you read it? I'm not sure she's known very much as a, a poet as much as she's she is. Not, a she's not known as a poet. The poems were just published in small, not very well-known periodicals and one anthology. And then that's the early section. These poems were written in the 1960s, sort of before she started writing her first novel. And then there's three that, ha- that are written later on in the 70s, but which she sort of incorporates into her book about Japan. So she's not well known at all. And, and, and these, nov- these poems are, as I say, in the British Library, in her archives, but they've not really been much seen or heard of before this. So it's wonderful that they're now here. And I, I think one of the most amazing things about the poems is, is how her voice seems to be so... Um, undeniably there, right from the beginning. The other thing, I mean, we've, you've touched upon this very slightly, but maybe it's worth reflecting upon, is her status within ideas of feminism. You know, you said that in some ways she felt that male contemporaries were regarded, or you might even feel male contemporaries were regarded more sympathetically than, than she was, and they had a, a sort of a, an easier ride of it in terms of their publishing history. I she, think they just had more, they, they, they were reported more, they got more space, you know, there was more noise around male writers, more interest. 
than there was in, in, in her writing. And there was a lack of acknowledgement about its originality or about its intellectual range, I think. She's often dismissed as a sort of whimsical writer and her writing is quite loud and purple. But it's, it's like that for a reason and that's one of the things that's often misunderstood. I mean, in fact, Rosemary Hill says in her collection, it's hard not to feel it is all a bit overdone. But Angela's overdoneness, if you want, was intentional. It was a political attitude. And it was to do with the sort of outsiderness, the vagrancy of women, if you want. So it was a response to that. It was an excessive style in response to the sort of excessive position that women found themselves in. Which is interesting in terms of how she has historically been both claimed and, and rejected by feminists. Again, she doesn't sort of fit the, the categories that we're looking to, to push her into, one or, one or the other. It's, it's about multiplicity in every tale. And if you compare her to someone more straightforwardly um, feminist, someone like her contemporary Naomi Mitchison, for example, who kind of campaigned tirelessly for abortion, contraception, free marriage. Mitchison, for example, doesn't really blow apart the stories in the same way that, that Angela Carter does. Her heroines are, are sort of trapped in the system, much though they, they seek to overthrow it. Whereas with Carter, you've got this added kind of psychological complexity, which is, you know, well, why don't we look at the fact that perhaps these women might not want to change the system. She she wrote the the Sadian woman that that essay about precisely book, the blowing long book on Dessard, the, the book the long book on Dessard, exactly the, the kind woman. of feminist reappraisal of, of the work of of um, the Marquis de Sade in which she kind of praises him for for allowing us to see women as more than objects or, or heifers you know or breeding vehicles and by doing that by kind of celebrating that aspect of, of the woman's sexuality in these tales uh, you can see why it's it's a much more complex position for a feminist in those days especially she's sort of post-feminist I suppose again to, to try to reduce her to a category. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, the thing about categories is difficult. I interviewed her in eighty-five, in nineteen eighty-five, about a friend of hers, the Guyanese writer Wilson Harris, and she said about him, you know, that he was absolutely unassimilable to any position. And I think that's the case with Angela. It's complex because she was unassimilable, but that doesn't mean that she wasn't, but also a feminist and a socialist, and that these ideas fed into her writing. I suppose this unassimilable. One of the difficulties in, in talking about her in relation to feminism is, is that you end up with this notion that feminism was itself a sort of more simple or unified thing in the 70s. Yeah, and I guess um, this kind of unassimilableness, gosh, that was difficult to say. It's a tough, it's a tough <laughs> word. You've, done, you've both done very well with I it. I did my very best, but um, I guess that's what allows her to kind of keep coming back to us and turning and changing and giving us more and more and more and remaining, you know, er ever relevant. Yes, it's also, though, that she was such a brilliant reader of all the currents and the signs of what was going on. Um, and as I said, that she, 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 was, uh, she was an intellectual writer. So her engagement with ideas was always subtle and always complex. You know, she said about feminism, she said, I'm not so bothered about pornography. I think what's imp more important are things like equal pay or racism or the conditions of women's lives. These are the things that need to be changed. So, so I think she was, in a way, a campaigning feminist. It's just that she wasn't reductive in any way. Yeah. And, <laughs> you and, know, she was a superb, subtle artist. That complexity fed into her politics as well as into her, her literature. 
That is almost all we have time for this week. Many thanks to Thea, to Tim Parks, Kate Webb and Pamela Haag. Please do subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. We will be back every week with highlights from the TLS and discussions on other cultural subjects. This week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we have discussed today. Plus, Catherine Sutherland on the 19th century enforced clearances of the Highlands. Ian Baruma on anti-Semitism and the left, ever topical of course. Geoffrey Collins on the virtues of capitalism. Russell Williams on Michelle Huelbeck's photography. Christina Riggs on Western influences on Egyptology. And Robert Douglas Fairhurst on the magic and also magically bad movie Now You See Me Too. You can visit our website that-tls.co.uk to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions and follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at The TLS. But finally, the news that the great lyric poet Geoffrey Hill had died came bringing with it huge sadness this week. Hill was one of the few indisputably major post-war poets whose work was challenging and even difficult in its style. As, of course, were the themes. Hill was especially attentive to the blood-drenched periods of religious conflict, including the Holocaust. He was a regular contributor to the TLS, not only as a poet, but also as an essayist. And I recall as an undergraduate in Cambridge, the importance attached to him as a critic, as someone preternaturally sensitive to the sounds, resonances and elusiveness of words. So this week in the TLS in tribute, we published one of his poems that appeared for the first time in the paper back in 1990. Entitled Scenes with Harlequins, it was written in memory of the Russian lyric poet Alexander Bloch. It is read by the deputy editor of the TLS, Alan Jenkins. So until Until next week, here is the poetry of the great Geoffrey Hill. Geoffrey Hill, who died on June 30th, was one of the most important English poets of the years after the Second World War. Some of his finest work was first published in the TLS, including The Mystery of the Charity of Charles Peguy in 1983, and seven years later, Scenes with Harlequins, a sequence in memory of the Russian symbolist poet Alexander Bloch. There are two epigraphs to the sequence. The first, from the actress Natalia Volokova, writing to Bloch in 1907. Joyfully I accept this strange book, joyfully and with fear. In it there is so much beauty, poetry, death. I await the accomplishment of your task. And the second is from Bloch himself in 1920. All the sounds have gone silent. Can't you hear that there aren't any sounds any more? Scenes with Harlequins by Geoffrey Hill In Memoriam, Alexander Block 1. Distance is on edge The level tide stands rimmed with mercury Again the estranged spirit is possessed of light The common things glitter uncommonly City besieged by the sun Amid sibylline galas A dust pluming the chariots of tyrants and invalids peppered with mica, granite-faced seer, scathed by invisible planets as men dream of war, like a fresh sea wind, like the lilac at your petrified heart, as something anciently known. 2. The day blinks and birds gust from the square. Ferrous sulphate vapours in the dens of dead photographers. With white seraphic hair against the sun, Who are these strangers, or who are these charred spirits, glaring their vitreous eyes towards apocalypse? They are not of our flesh to do them justice. Still they outshine us among the prophets. 3. Beautiful lady, 
in reverence, with sorrow and masquerade, how else should we have lived? Tempestuous fantasies, blood-tinted, opaline, essential clouds. I am not myself, I think, in this last act without end. Lordly and faithful servant of life, what can one say? By humour of lament, spontaneous word of stone, inspired debacle many times rehearsed, look to abide tyrannous egality, and freedom led forth, blinded by prophecies. Now it is gleating Venus who so decrees, and now it is parched Mars, beautiful lady. 4. The risen Christ. Once more faith is upon us, a jubilant, brief keening without respite. Obedience, bitter joy, the elements, clouds, winds, louvers where the bell makes its wild mouths. Holy Rus, into the rain's horizons, peacock dyed, tail feathers of storm. So it goes on. 5. Even now one is amazed by transience, how it outlasts us all. Motley of shadow dabbles the earth, the malachite bronze nymphs and sea gods, the pear trees motionless wooden leaves. In this light constrained spirit, be a lord of your age. Rejoice, let the strange legends begin. 6. Of rumour, of clamour, I shall be silent. I will not deal in the vatic exchanges between committees, mysticism by the book. History is aglow with bookish fires. Be gone, you grave jewellers, and you Spartan hoplites in masks of foil. Orthodox, arcane interpreters of repute, this is understood. Why should I hear further what you propose? Exegetes may come to speak of the silence that has arisen. It is not unheard of. 7. Decembrist blood. We are taxed for their visions. The earth turns, returns, through cycles of declamation, with feuilletons and iron fantasies of the state, radamantine, the grim torches of naphtha, the unspeakable, dull woe, of which I may have had foreknowledge, I forget, in retribution. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.